I think close the doors, send the people in who want to sit and then close the doors. Okay, so you go back to slide 17. One before this, just one before this. Right. Okay. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Allahumma salli ala sayyidina Muhammad wa ala ala sayyidina Muhammad wa barak wa sallam. So I was saying there were going to sometimes be some hard cases which you might not be able to understand. In my 24 years of studying Islam, there has never been anything that I've come across that I could not find explanations of ulama for it. There have been times when I had a question about a verse of Qur'an. Not a question like a doubt, but just wanted more information about one aspect of a verse. Maybe the first of here didn't have it, second didn't have it, third didn't have it. But sure enough, sooner or later I would find some professor who talked about that aspect and more. Same thing in Hadith. If I ever wondered something, some more clarification, explanation about a Hadith, after searching, 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 sure enough I found one muhaddith who had talked about that aspect and more. And same with any mas'ala, legal issue in Sharia, I would search and find that there were some jurors who talked about that issue and more. So it's never happened to me that I've never found an explanation. Alright? Yes, definitely that can happen, that some you might find some explanations more satisfying, you might find some explanations less satisfying. Alright? Uh, but... One can always get at least, like I told you, a very significant, if not necessarily absolutely complete understanding about the matter. A second principle that occurred to me right now during the break, which did not occur to me before I adjourned, is that you should only give an answer to someone who has the question. And if somebody doesn't have the question then you should not give them the answer because by giving them the answer without them having the question, the answer itself will create a question because you're actually, they're one step behind you. So if there's a question, then the answer is the answer to the question. If there's no question, you give the answer, it becomes a question for them. And some people say even that only give, I'm not 100% on that position, but some people say only give water to those who are thirsty. And only impart knowledge to those who seek it. Obviously you are sitting or whoever is listening, you came to seek it, uh, but in, about any particular matter, right? And then Mulana Ruhul Ramtai has a beautiful poem which I use for many reasons in many ways because I love it so much. He said that water is thirsty for the one who thirsts for it. Water is thirsty for the one who thirsts for it. This can be used for knowledge, this is used for zikr, this can be used, this, he was using it for the, his 
relationship with Shamsit Tabriz, Ramadana Sheikh, student relationship, Ustaz student relationship, many ways that a person can use this, understand this poem of his. Alright? So, and then also during the break, I was thinking of actually, there's quite a few hard cases, there's not even just one or two or three. So, one could make a selection from them, and perhaps it would not be a good idea to bring you people today to the most hard, hardest case I've ever encountered in 24 years. If you come to me after 24 years, then I'll share with you the hardest case I've ever encountered in 24 years. Because being super hard for me will mean <laughs> way beyond. Uh, for most of you, Allah uh, maybe some of you could do better at it, but that will be when you bring, if any one of you ever bring me that question. I will list for you a whole bunch of cases that some people find hard, and some I won't even comment about. Some I will comment on a little bit. Okay? So let's take some examples of these hard cases. I'm going to start easier and build our way up. One example that sometimes people have is that Allah SWT has mentioned in the Quran that Nabi Nuh lived for 950 years. Now, on first glance, for people like you and me, it's fine. Allah SWT can say anything, whatever He says, we believe it. But when you're doing da'wah or you're meeting somebody who is from a different faith or from a secular perspective or again from a scientific perspective who believes that human beings can never ever live more than 120 years old and they're encountering, they're encountering the verse and they have a question about it. So how can you help them reach that resolution? So one general principle I'm going to give you is that Allah SWT said in Quran in many places, multiple times, Hua ala kulli shay'in qadir. That he has power over each and every single thing. Now, these people who believe in comic books and science fiction, fantasy novels and movies, so they have a Superman. Superman, it's not a maybe janta, right? Up there a lot, but you know, I grew up in America, so I know who Superman is. I mean, who people think he is. The mythological figure of Superman. The Superman has superpowers. So if you live, if you were to imagine that I live in a universe in which Superman is real, then you would say, yes, a man can fly. Because you live in a universe, you're imagining for a moment that you live in a universe where Superman is real. You can say, yes, there's a man who can move a mountain, there's a man who can fly to other galaxies, right? Because in that universe, Superman is real. Our Iman teaches us that Allah SWT is Al-Haq, He is real. And remember, this is why I told you in the beginning that faith-based approach is to believe in the existence of Allah Ta'ala and His attributes. Remember? I said to believe in Allah Ta'ala as He has described Himself to be. So if there is a being who is superpower, all-powerful, ala kulli shayin kabir, you don't think He can make one human being live 950 years? Of course He can. Yes, if you don't believe that that being is Allah Kulishayn Kabir, and you only believe in science, then yes, you will have this dilemma. Then a person will say, okay, fine, but how did Allah SWT do it? Allah SWT, maybe the same cryogenics that people are trying to discover, the atheists who want to live forever, who are so worried about dying, maybe whatever they're trying to discover, Allah Ta'ala already knows that, and He did that for Nabi Nuh living. Maybe Allah put, if you want to speak to them on their terms, right? Put them in some type of metabol, some stasis in his metabolism. Allah eventually you will read something that if you told the biologist that if this is possible, he said, yes, if this is possible, 
A person could live for 950 years. Best why Allah Ta'ala can make anything possible. My husband can make anything possible. Still, that's one level of answer. Another level of answer is Allah Ta'ala can do it without asbab. This is very important. Don't accept science as a necessity. Science is not necessary to understand because Allah Ta'ala is ala kulli shayin kadir. He can make the fire cold for Nabi Ibrahim by negating his thermal energy or simply by kun fayyukun without any scientific means, scientific process because he's ala kulli shayin kadir. Right? Still, if a person insists, and no, I don't understand, how could a person live 950 years? How can a person live 950 years? And what I also told you is that they should not abandon their faith. In other words, do you believe in Allah SWT because Nuh lived for 9 Is this the reason why you believe in Allah SWT? Because Nuh lived for 950 years, but now you're not 100% sure could he live for 950 years, so you're not 100% sure Allah SWT exists? So the answer anybody would say, no, I don't believe in Allah SWT because I believe in Allah SWT long before I found out about this ayah. Right? Similar is the hadith about the height of Nabi Adam salam, which is, you know, I can't remember how many cubits or meters or feet it translated to in English, but it's much more beyond any human being, the height that any human, it would be giant-sized, right? So Allah Taala knows best, right? Interestingly, another way you can work on this, whether for yourself or for a person, is that there is a notion of miracles, whether you call it mu'jizat, or even Allah Taala's own miraculous power of creation, such as the creation of Nabi Adam salam himself without any sabab min al-asbab, without any cause. And you see, anybody who can believe that will never be shaken up by the theory of human evolution. But if somebody thinks that, no, everything Allah Taala does must be done through some sabab, then they might be shaken up by the theory of evolution. Because then what is the sabab of the creation of Adam salam? So it's very important to believe in Allah SWT as He is, and that He is all-powerful, and He does things without needing any asbab. And yes, many times Allah SWT chooses to use asbab to do things, which is the birth of every other human being, except for Adam salam and Isa salam. Other than that, every single other one, 99.9999999% were born and created through asbab, through causes and means. All right. Then there are sometimes some very particular women's issues. And sometimes only women have questions about them. Sometimes a man may have a question about it. So one of the questions that women very famously often have is that why is a man allowed to marry four wives and a woman is not allowed to marry four husbands? Right? Uh, and now, I don't, I, alhamdulillah, I've never met any man or woman who that made them question their belief in Allah SWT, but they're questioning an Islamic teaching. That's what I'm trying to talk about, right? So, okay. So, when you open it up and unpack it, so you ask them, okay, why are you questioning this? It's not because they doubt the authenticity of Quran. It's not because they doubt the authority of the Prophet wasallam. It's that social reality thing, which we put, early, I mean, at some other slide on the bottom. That for them, their experience of social reality, their own personal emotions, is that such a thing should not happen. Now this opens up, this opens up. Another thing is that it's natural that a person wants that whatever they think is good and right, obviously Allah SWT would also think that to be good and right. So if you have a person, man or woman, who personally thinks that a man should only have one wife, and then they discover, or they knew, or they start to think about this, or focus on this, that Allah Ta'ala 
his view is different, his position is different than what my position is. So that creates a little bit of a misalignment, right? And that can also then create an awkwardness, all right? So what happens, now I want to open, to use this as an example. I'm not going to discuss that issue directly. I'm just using that case to issue some, to address some highlights for you. And that is that, first of all, Nardine, there are some things that are permission and there are some things that are prescription. Always remember this. There are some things that are permission and there are some things that are prescription. For example, let's say any one of you is a doctor. All right? It's permissible in Sharia for you to renounce your medical practice and drive a rickshaw in Karate. It's permissible. You wouldn't be doing anything haram. Right? But nobody would advise you to do that. And if nobody would prescribe that course of activity to you. In fact, were you to do it, even though it's permissible, but irrespective of the fact that it's absolutely permissible, every one of your friends, parents, family would tell you you're crazy, and why are you abandoning your medical profession to drive a rickshaw, right? So what does that mean? It has, it has absolutely nothing to do with whether it's permissible or not. It is permissible, the question is whether you're going to do it or not. Now, the tone and tenor, and a lot of this has to do with the Arabic, is called siga, the particular conjugal form and grammatical way Allah SWT says things in Quran and blesses the Prophet to say things in Hadith, there are some things that are commands, right? That's called Amr, they're Fard. Then there are some things that are recommendations, Mustahab, Mandub. Right? These two things, commands and recommendations, are prescriptions. You're being prescribed, enjoined, invited, encouraged to do those activities. Then there's another type of language in Quran, and also in the words of Nabi Karim Sallallahu which is mere permission, dun al-istahbab. And it's a permission that is empty of all recommendation, empty of all obligation, empty of all prescription, it's merely permission. So I'll give you a classic example of that is divorce. Now, if Allah subhanahu had not made divorce permissible, then all of us would have thought that divorce would have been haram, right? And then, if a person got married, there would be, let's say, no exit at all. Now, I'll introduce another element. What happens, especially in these things that are only at the level of permission, not at the level of recommendation or obligation, so no level of prescription, there's a lot of abuse of the things that are at this level. So I think all of you would know out there in social reality, there's a lot of abuse of divorce, which means that Allah, Allah knows best what He wants and what he knows, but in all likelihood, Allah Subhanahu would not want that husband and wife to get divorced, but they chose to get divorced anyway. Now, what does it mean? In that case, actually, it would have been the recommendation of deen to stay together. So, there are many things Allah Subhanahu has mentioned about this in Quran, right? And many things the Prophet has said in the Hadith, the most famous is that the abghaz, the most detestable thing to Allah subhanahu of the permissible things is divorce. So that's almost like you can say a disincentive, a, the opposite of recommendation, right? And then the Allah subhanahu Quran outlines the whole process. 
that you should try sulah, you should try verbally reprimanding, you should try other ways of chastising, you should separate the beds, you should have third-party arbitration, then you should only give just one divorce and then wait, maybe you might do review, you might patch up, let some time pass, then maybe then you give a second one, then again let some time, and ultimately, finally, only after exhausting every single possibility should you then go for the final divorce, right? Which is not necessarily even by giving three, even if you give one and you let the whole iddat pass, then also becomes final if you give a simple, plain, what's called talaqe, raji. So that's the prescribed way of doing it. If somebody says, what if I give three talaqs in one shot? Permissible, but not prescribed. It wasn't the way you were supposed to do it. But it is, Allah Ta'ala has created that permission. Allah Ta'ala has created that possibility. Alright? So many times there are things at the level of permission that people abuse. They do improperly. Now, if somebody does something improperly, it doesn't mean it becomes impermissible. Impermissible is something else. That's called haram. Improper is something else. Okay? So there are many people who divorce improperly. There are many people who do multi, multiple marriages improperly. And 99% of the questions that are raised on these things is because of improper use. It's very rare that if I was to give somebody a proper case, if somebody would raise a question. So let's take the same two examples. So if I told somebody, look, that there are two people, and they genuinely, sincerely thought that they were marrying one another for the sake of deen, and after they got married, and it wasn't love, well, what do you call them, the Pakistan love these things, love marriage versus arranged marriage, right? Alright, yeah, no, 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 it wasn't a love marriage, it was an arranged marriage, it was arranged for the sake of deen, and we tried to make it work, and we kept trying, kept trying this, that, even once there was a divorce, and we patched up, finally we just started to part ways, right? But we're fine with each other, there was no battle over custody, no ill will, we parted with Esam. So I think if this situation was presented in front of anyone, they wouldn't have an objection to it. Because it was something that Allah Ta'ala gave permission to do, and it was done properly. As opposed to, if it turns out the husband got angry one night and he gave three talaqs altogether, people will object to that. Why? Because fine, it's something Allah Ta'ala gave permission to do, but it was done improperly. If there's a person similarly, like for example, if you, I mean, just to use, it's a very stere, I mean, it's a very stereotypical thing what I'm about to do right now. But you take the example of the rich Saudi, who has two wives. They have the same two houses. They have the same two cars. They have the same oh, monetary income. You know, he says one of them was divorced, or one of them was a widower. She was my cousin, right? I treat them both well. I'm doing the best I can do. Most people would say, okay, nobody's ever given me an objection to that, right? Because that was something, that was something Allah Ta'ala gave permission for, and something that he did properly, right? The person who will object to that is the first wife, because that's an emotional issue for her. Now, what does she want? Now, I'm going to be very blunt about this, right? What she wanted was that her husband should be only hers. That is an ideal. Now, let me use some more words. That is an ideal. And that's something that's preferred. And Allah Ta'ala entitles her to that feeling of preference. It doesn't mean Shreya is negating that. Allah Ta'ala fully, the deen of Islam, entitles her to have that feeling that this is what I would have preferred. Right? That my husband would only marry me. And she's fully entitled for her whole life to keep that as a preference. 
the permission in Quran does not mean she has to forego her personal preference, right? And so much so that the jurists have even said that if a woman, when she contracts her nikah, she can insert any shart, any condition that is not repugnant to sharia, that is not against sharia, and that is mutually agreed upon by two parties. And if she puts that condition in her nikah, that my husband will never marry again, and the husband agrees to that condition, well, she has locked him in, she has gotten him contractually to waive the permission that Allah Ta'ala gave him. Allah Ta'ala has given people that right. You can waive your rights. You can waive your permissions. Why? So, this, so she could guarantee what she felt was her ideal or her preference. Many of you are thinking, Shukare, mere mere Right? Yes. That's also there in Sharia. Do you see what I'm saying? There are ways. There are paths. If a person feels so insistent about a preference, is so committed to an ideal, there are ways that you can secure that ideal and preference for yourself. Right? That's possible. Alright? So, you see, there are many different ways to tackle something. Now, the mistake that people make is they only look at the hard case, which is a problematic one, as opposed to looking in theory why Allah SWT said that in Quran, or why did the Prophet say in the Hadith, and how there may have been many applications of this theory also that were problem-free, they will only look at the problematic application. If you do that in anything in life, there's nothing. You can't spare anything. I'll give you an example. There are people who go to co-education, and because they went to co-education, they end up in zina. I guarantee you this is the case, because I have real, live data on this matter, right? Real data cases of people who came to me, okay? Now, what does that mean? That wasn't the reason they went to school. That wasn't the reason they went to university. That wasn't the ideal way to do it. That wasn't the preferred way to do it. That wasn't the prescribed way to do it. But yes, that environment created a certain promiscuity, certain permissibility, and created the possibility for them to do that, right? So the problem was with their choice. The problem was with their choice of the improper way of doing things, as opposed to Allah's Ta'ala creating that possibility. This I'm sort of leading up to, uh, which is the afternoon session, which is the uh, free will and predestination. So I give you a few examples. Sometimes people have questions about a verse of Quran or a Hadith because it doesn't resonate with science, scientific understanding. Sometimes people have a question because it doesn't, whatever incident they observed in social reality doesn't resonate with their own personal preferences. I'll give you another example. So there are a couple of things which are very difficult. So now let me give you an example of a very difficult case. Going to hell forever. This is a very difficult thing, right? You know, uh, I'll give you an example. I have first cousins who are Hindu in India. Right? So I come from a mixed Muslim-Hindu family. Majority Muslim, but there is one branch, one, two odd branches that are Hindu, right? Now obviously I've met, I have met a couple of those first cousins in my life. Right Now, if I go to my purely academic, scholarly understanding of Islam, pretty much I also I know very well that the position of the overwhelming majority of theologians is unless they, Allah Ta'ala gives them hidayah for iman and tawfiq of tawbah, uh, and specifically because I know they actually do some Hindu practices and beliefs, they're going to go to hell forever. Right? And this is a very difficult thing for people. Right? Because now it's personal, because it's my cousin. 
right? For some people, muscle, they're better than me. It, it, it's difficult for any human being. Just because their muscle is so humanistic, right? They just can't accept the notion that any human being would go to hell forever. So, okay, you can go for some time. There should be some period. Then this opens up a whole series of questions, right? Then they start thinking, you know, and then, which is a very dangerous thing. Again, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> I'm just describing, I'm not prescribing, but I'm describing to you the type of thoughts that people have, right? They even start thinking, which is extremely dangerous, they start thinking, they don't say it, they think, if I were Allah, I wouldn't put that person in hell forever. They start thinking like that, you know? They start thinking like that. So then they don't understand, right? First of all, you never, you can never, this sentence is never going to lead anywhere positive, if I were Allah. Now, you can't think like that. It's just like what I did for you before. Now, on that, all of you were saying, when I said the secular says, if the Prophet was alive, you were all nodding, yeah, yeah, that's how they talk, and that was wrong. But this is also wrong, Right? This is also wrong. Or, one step down, if it were up to me, so not if I was, like Allah was alike, and there would be if it were up to me, I wouldn't put that person in hell for it. Well, it's not, if it were up to you, it's not up to you. Allah will have it proclaimed on the Day of Judgment to whom belongs the dominion and rule and sovereignty on that day. Only and only to Allah Al-Wahid, that one Allah Ta'ala, Al-Kahar, that dominating Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. You can't even think like that if, if it were up to me. Right? But still, this is a big thing for people. They still say, okay, fine, I accept it, I believe it, I know what you're saying, but it disturbs me. So then, this itself disturbs them. The fact that something about my deen disturbs me, that itself is disturbing me. Right? So you keep coming back on this issue. There was one scholar, you find it, it's, it's amazing. Remember I was mentioning to Ibn Taymiyyah, and Ibn Taymiyyah has a few of his departures. One of his departures, though, contemporary Salafis have tried to have their, try their level best to suppress this, hide this, not print it, and never let it get translated. But it's clear cut in his works. And the biggest exposition of this was then once somebody in England did a PhD on this, and actually wrote the whole thing up and then printed it, right? One of, one of Ibn Taymiyyah's positions is that hell won't be forever. That's one of his positions, one of his tafarrudat, one of his unique, mm, let's say, departures from the rest of Islamic tradition. Now, like I told you, remember the workshop? There's no basis for this position. Because the workshop, you know, Allah subhanahu wa has used this word in Quran, khulud. Khulud means dwell therein forever. Right? They will be there forever. Right? And it's not once or twice or three times. It's dozens and dozens of clear-cut what are called muhkam. Muhkam means the absolute clear-cut, definitive, straight-up, unambiguous ayat of Quran. Right? So we know that for sure. Now, I used to wonder, and nobody can answer this question, not me, no one. I, but I wonder, why did Ibn Taymiyyah come up with this position? And the reason I'm showing you this is not, I'm not trying to malign him. I'm trying to show you that even such a great scholar like him could not handle, reconcile this matter, the hard cases, right? So what are you guys, right? For him, it was a hard case and he just couldn't do it. So he ended up abandoning it. That's not the right way to go. That's not the right course of action to pursue, right? But it also shows you that people have thought about this and there have been humanists uh, you don't have to be a secular atheist or 
non-liberal in the, in the bad sense or non-practicing sense to be humanist. The great classical in Ibn Taymiyyah, Rehumulatah, was extremely hardcore, strict, conservative, orthodox. We're not talking about anybody who, you know, lacks in their deen. Hardcore knowledge, hardcore practice, solid. Muttaqi salih, waliullah alim deen Right? You understand? But the hard cases are very hard. The deeper you go, the harder they get. <laughs> the deeper you go, there's nothing. The deeper you go, the harder. They don't get any easier. And if you keep going deeper and deeper and deeper, it can just get harder and harder and harder. So, what's the solution? One solution is what I call the easy exit. The easy exit is that, look, Allah Spalta is not, it's not going to be up to me, Allah Spalta is not going to ask me who goes to Jahannam and for how long. Because that's also not everybody goes forever. There are some who will go and will be taken out. Right? Allah Spalta is not going to ask me who goes in and for how long. On this earth, I don't actually have to decide that. That's also something important. This is another way saying, it's not necessary for you to actively adopt this theological position that all non-Muslims are going to hell. You don't have to think like that even. You just have to think, look, Allah SWT is going to send whoever he wants to Jahannam. I don't have to necessarily take an absolute statement like that. Alright? You don't know. Hey, we don't know. Alright? Third, is that Allah SWT alone will make this decision. And fourth, now remember, you, we believe in Allah's attributes. And Allah is all merciful and all just. You see, in this world, if I told you that there's a judge, and I somehow convinced you that he is an absolutely true, just judge, then you, if you had a case coming in front of him, you would be relaxed. You would say, okay, now that I know he is just, then I have nothing to worry about. Right? And that would still, there would be some margin of error because you're talking about a human being. Right? Allah subhanahu is absolutely all just. So that means there's, and actually even Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to reinforce this, has even said literally word for word in Quran that Allah ta'ala will not do zulm on anyone on that day. No zulm will be done, no zulm, nobody will be allowed to do zulm, no zulm will be done unto them. This comes many times in Quran. So that's all we know, right? Now if our mind thinks it would be unjust to put X, Y, Z person in Jahannam. It doesn't matter. Because Allah Ta'ala truly understands justice in me and you don't. That's the next thing. One is to understand Allah Ta'ala's attributes, the perfection of His knowledge, the perfection of His mercy, the perfection of His justice. And to be honest about our own attributes is my knowledge is imperfect. Whatever I think is mercy, I have an imperfect understanding of that. What I think to be justice, that is also imperfect. Right? I'm not, I'm imperfect. Allah Ta'ala is perfect. Alright? So, when you're, so this is an aspect of submission. Now again, like I told you, this is a partial understanding. It's not like I said, well, it's just, you know, it will happen. No. It's a new way to look at it. Before, the looking at it was, okay, my first cousin who's Hindu is going to go to Jahannam forever. There's a new way, now is a new way of looking at it. My first cousin who's Hindu, if he, dies like that, he will stand in front of the all-perfect, all-beautiful, all-noble, all-merciful, all-just Allah SWT, and Allah Ta'ala will perfectly decide about that person. That's more acceptable. That's fine. Right? So the way you understand it, the way you express it, the way you describe it, 
is what makes it more palatable. So it takes us away. You have to make it, generalize it, you have to abstract it, it takes us away from the particular emotional or personal attachment that might sometimes be there. Alright? Uh, so this is, a, this is an example also of a, a very hard case, uh, which is the aspect of Jahannam. Right? Uh, and I would tell you, if, it, if you don't find that to be a hard case, then you need to work on your spirituality. Yeah. You know, in fact, uh, those of you who were there in the Sound Institute last week, one of my teachers came and he was talking about Quran, and he made a very interesting point that, I mean, amongst the many, many proofs that the Quran could not have been the word of the Prophet ﷺ, but it can only be revealed divine speech, he said that the descriptions of Jahannam in the Quran are so extreme and so intense, Sayyidina Rasulullah himself could never have come up with this. In fact, no human being would have been able to come up with this, come up with such a description of Jahannam, right? So it was another, yet another, I mean, we've heard so many different proofs from ulama about the, what we call Ejaz al-Quran, inimitability of Quran, but this was another ajeeb from another angle. And when, I, when he was saying it, I was thinking, it's true, you know. Only the being who created Jahannam could write about Jahannam like that. There's no way any human being could ever think of describing a place like Jahannam. It's beyond the imagination of a human being, right? And when you realize that it's, it's beyond, it is, it is beyond our humanity, to understand the eternality of hell. So if it's beyond our humanity, not beyond our mind or my learning or my... It's beyond our humanity to understand it. So you have to leave those things up entirely in the realm of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the way to reconcile this is, Allah, like I told you before, Allah ta'ala also has taken this entirely in His realm. Who goes to Jannah? Who goes to Jannah? Me and you have no knowledge about that. We will make no decision about that. We have no role in that whatsoever. Alright, on that day, in this world they can try to dawah, to try to guide people away from Jahannam, to guide them towards the Jannah, but on that day we have no knowledge, no decision-making power whatsoever. Alright, so it is entirely out of our realm and Allah Ta'ala has kept it entirely in His realm. If it had been partially even in our realm, then yes, it would be an extreme tension for us. Extreme source of tension. Partly, I need, you know, at some level, even to some extent, if we had to make that decision. So that is also one aspect of the resolution. So now, I'm going to take this case, as you move to slide number 18, and I'm going to flush this one case out in detail. And then all these things I just told you right now, you're going to see all of this in this issue of free will and predestination. I pick this particular one to do in detail, uh, because Allah Hualam, but from what I saw, I mean, specifically I'm talking about the English educated university students or graduates crowd uh, ask me this question a lot. And somehow this seems to be the first victory uh, that the atheist often makes on the Muslim's heart. That you don't have any free will anyway, and so then what's the point? Or that Allah subhanahu wa knows whether you're going to Jannat or Jahannam already, so what's the point? Or you were born in a Muslim family and so-and-so was born in a Hindu family, so it's not fair, you know, if you had been born in their family, you would have been Hindu. If he had been born in your family, he would have been Muslim, so what's the point? And, like I told you, it's not just the first thing that's frequently asked to me, 
and one of the first things that I find that Muslims start getting weakened against atheists, I've also seen it's one of the first things, first attacks to atheists use. And it's, it, 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 and you never, it, and you need to understand how to be, I mean, you might not give you the job, but you need to be more strong in being lajwa. Right? Because your job, I gave you a job, it's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? It's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But I'm going to show you some things now, we're going to open this up a little bit for you. So if you move now to the next slide, slide number 19. You can show a bit more than that. Yeah. Alright, so... Let me explain a little bit before I go to this particular ayah. First you have to understand the Islamic concept of humanity. Out of all of Allah SWT's vast creation, human beings are unique. Human beings and the jinn, technically speaking, humanity and the jinn are unique. They're exceptions to his entire creation. And the exceptions are what you have in the second bullet point, is that humanity and jinn have been given the freedom to disbelieve and have been given the freedom to disobey. There is no other creation that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created that can disobey Him. The sun cannot disobey Him, the moon cannot disobey Him, the earth cannot disobey Him, a cat cannot disobey Him, a whale cannot disobey Him, a far-off galaxy star cannot disobey Him, a speck of dust cannot disobey Him. There is no creation that can disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala except the human and the jinn. There is no creation that can adopt, choose to adopt, disbelief, except the human and the jinn. A cow cannot dis- disbelieve in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. A rock cannot disbelieve in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. A planet cannot disbelieve in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually mentioned in Quran about the mountains, about the sun, about the stars, all in obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All in obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alright. So this is a unique thing. Now, I'm going to cast aside the jinn because Allah subhanahu wa hasn't given us too much information in Quran or these about the jinn. And the second reason is that none of us are jinn. Alright? No matter what, mashallah, especially in Pakistan, some people think, huh? That mere and the jinn are Right? So I, you know, I always think that, you know, okay, if I was a jinn and I could enter a human being, I wouldn't enter you, alright? So I need to talk to this jinn, I'm not, I, I don't need to counsel you, I need to counsel this jinn that what's the matter with you, you have the ability to enter a human being and you pick this person, you know, <laughs> right? If I was a jinn, I'd enter, you know, I don't know who I would enter, you know, but it would be somebody, you know, alright? Oh. Right? So we're going to cast aside the jinn. Alright? Humanity, because we have more information about it, and this is our duty, learning and scholarship, we have to learn about who we are and why Allah Ta'ala created us and what Allah Ta'ala wants us to do. Alright? So, insan definitely, and you can again use social reality for that, you can meet people who freely disbelieve in Allah Ta'ala and freely disobey in Him and actually fight for that freedom. Actually fight for that freedom. Alright? And defend that freedom. So there's no denying this, empirically either. So all of empiricism, rationality, all of it also will accept this point. There are people who freely disbelieve and freely disobey. Alright. So the question is that of all of his creation, why did Allah make this 
exception. Because out of all of his creation, Allah Ta'ala plans to make an exception in the Akhirah, is that humanity will live forever. There's no other creation like that. They are mentioned that Allah Ta'ala will make the dog of a Sabiqaf live forever. There are a few exceptions from some other elements of creation. But as a race, as a species, as an entire genus of creation, it's only in some. And jinn, but I, I don't, we don't know 100% everything about the jinn. Alright? So that's an exception. No other. And if you think about it rationally, living eternally, that should only be Allah SWT. He is Al-Hayyul Qayyum. It only befits Him. We are mortal creatures. Why should we live forever? So there's a reason. The reason is this freedom. So actually, free will is not something against the teaching of Islam. The whole tension between free will and predestination is the crux of Islam. It's the focal point of Islam. Allah gave us this freedom. Because if you freely believe and you freely obey, that has value. And that has so much value to Allah that He will make such a person live forever in Jannah. And similarly, if you freely disbelieve and freely disobey, and that's the meaning of la ikraha fiddin, if you freely disbelieve and freely disobey, that has so much evil. The greatest evil, greater than the evil of murder, greater than the evil of any whatever other thing you can think of, the greatest evil is to deny the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's to deny the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alright? Okay. So, it's so a one verse where you can understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Quran al-Kareem, A'udhu billahi min ash-shaytan al-rajim, bismillah ar-Rahman al-Rahim, فَمَنْ شَاءَ فَلْيُؤْمِنْ وَمَنْ شَاءَ فَلْيَكْفُرْ That whomsoever wants, let them adopt the path of Iman, and whomsoever wants, let them deny. Okay? Literally means deny, disbelieve, uh, but let them deny. Alright? So this ayah itself, فَمَنْ شَاءَ شَاءَ It's will. It's literally free will. It's will, and the freedom to will, Allah is giving it in this verse. شَاءَ indicates that there's will, and the freedom to exercise that will on this critical issue of iman or kufr, Allah SWT is giving that freedom Himself in Qur'an. And this verse, and then the other one, لَا إِكْرَاهَ فِي Alright? So the fact that this freedom exists is part of Qur'an. Don't think the free will question came from outside of Islam. It's coming from inside the workshop. It's already there. Okay, then if you move to the next slide, which is slide number 20. And if you just show the whole thing, so framing the question, it's very important that you understand that this whole question of free will and predestination comes from within the Islamic tradition. It's not a question that the philosophers or the atheists are leveling against us. Why? Because the existence of free will comes from within the tradition and the existence of taqdeer also comes from within the tradition. The simplest way you can understand this is the sifat of Allah subhanahu wa himself. So the aqidah about the sifat is that Allah Ta'ala, just like He has always existed in His zat, in His essence, He has always existed in the sifat. They say in very simple Arabic, huwa al-an kama kan. He exists now as He always has. He's always been al-alim. His sifat of ilm and kudrat, absolute knowledge and absolute power. It's there. 
So our own deen teaches us that human beings have free will and complete absolute free will. And our own deen teaches us that Allah Ta'ala has the absolute knowledge of what you're going to do. It's not a question coming from without. You don't need any philosophy from outside to raise the question. Alright? It's very important to frame the question from within. Okay? Now let's look at this a little bit, Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala's knowledge. This is where it gets a little bit technical. Now when me and you think about knowledge, we divide our knowledge into knowledge of the past, knowledge of the present, and knowledge of the future. Alright? But you have to understand, now go back to Hua Al-An Kamakan. Allah Ta'ala exists now as He always has. So another thing they say in Arabic, La Makan Allahu, La Zaman Allahu. There is no space and no time. Space is also a creation and time is also a creation. So Allah Ta'ala created time itself and the passing of time. However you want, whatever you want to go, all Einsteinian, time dilation, whatever you want to say, it's all created by Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. Alright? Allah Ta'ala exists as a timeless being. As He always has and always will before He even created time. Time is a mere frame of reference for us mortals. And when Allah Ta'ala, out of His power, decrees for us to live forever, then also you won't really speak about linear time. Alright? That's a frame of reference. So for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there's no such thing as past, present, and future. The simplest way we would explain this when we used to, if we were to use a board, is if I were to take a board and, let's see, I can just do an ishara. If I were to take a blackboard, let's say there was a board, and I drew two lines to make three parts. I said, this is your past, everything. Just imagine that somebody could write down everything that happened to you before. Present, which is technically there's no such thing because the present, every moment is fleeting. But let's say you define present as today. So everything that hap- happens and will happen to you today. And then third part of the board is future. Every single thing that will ever happen to you between now and you die and even after you are resurrected on the day of judgment. I'll go further. Everything you will do in Jannah, inshallah. Every sahabi you will meet, the first words you will say to Nabi Akareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the first words you will say to Nabi Isa alayhi salam, Nay think your future is a bit beyond my next job and next degree. Huh? How you will feel when you meet Sayyidina Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala anhu. How you will do hamdah wa ta'ala with which words when Allah ta'ala inshallah shows you your dwelling and residence in Jannah. Hmm? You understand? That's all, all there. Let's say I write all that down. Then it's on one board, right? Just like you could see the whole board in one glance, Allah Ta'ala can see and know everything in less than a glance. That's what it means. There's no past, present, future for Allah So to even speak like that, that Allah Ta'ala knows my future, it's a nonsensical statement. Because your future is not the future for Allah Ta'ala. He's a timeless being. There's no difference between past, present, future. In fact... If anything, the way I told you, there's no real present for us. Everything is past or future because, right, this is what you, mm, this is what they teach you in calculus. You see, the present is, what is the present? One minute? You say, no, it's one second. No, it's one millisecond. You keep dividing it, dividing it, dividing it until you get closer to zero. So calculus teaches you the limit of x as it approaches zero is zero. <laughs> you just treat it as zero. That means there's no present. 
So Allah SWT is the being with everything for him, so to speak. Even this is not even technically correct. But from a frame of reference, there's no past time. Everything is a present. It's all still, it's all the same for Allah SWT. That itself is an amazing thing about Allah SWT. That he knows what you do today and he knows, inshallah, those things I told you that if Allah Ta'ala accepts us with his mercy and gives us more hidayah and tawfiq to do amal and tawfiq to make tawbah of sins and still only and because of his mercy on his day of judgment he puts us in Jannah, he also knows right now everything you'll do in Jannah. I mean, that's quite an amazing thing. Hmm? Just imagine if some person is going to Jannah but that morning he misses his Fajr Salah. So Allah Ta'ala is knowing simultaneously that this person is missing Fajr and also is going to be doing all these things in Jannah. This is only the mercy of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. This is what it means to be Al-Halim and Al-Rahim. Only Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala can be like this. No other being could even handle these two diverse types of knowledge or practice from any person. Alright? Okay. So, the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, quote-unquote, knows the future is coming from within the system. Alright. So, where does the paradox are? Now, this question, this question comes from outside the Islamic system. And that question is that, okay, now this is unfair, this is unjust, or there's no meaning and value to life if Allah ta'ala knows what you're going to do. That's not our question. That's somebody else's question. We don't have that problem. Understand that we as Muslims do not have a problem with Allah SWT knowing everything about us. Because we view him to be Al-Adim, Al-Khabir, Al-Basir, Al-Samir. So many different aspects to us. We have no problem with that. From somebody outside, they have this question. But how can he know and be aware and see and hear everything? And you think you're doing it of your own free will. So this is the part that comes from outside. Alright? Okay. Now, answer to this question. Because what they do is they try to take it to... Uh, but you can go to the next slide. I think we've done this one, slide number 21. So just for the first line, first two lines there, but knowledge and that's fine. The way you have it. So framing the paradox, that's what they do. They try to suggest... Paradox means that this is illogical. It's not possible that both things are there, that you have free will and Allah Ta'ala has the knowledge. You have free will and Allah Ta'ala has the knowledge. Right? So even from the questioner, there's no claim that you have the knowledge. There's no claim that Allah Ta'ala is doing the actions. It's understood. Now understand clearly. It's understood from both sides, from us and them, that the choosing and the doing we do and the knowing Allah Ta'ala has. Right? So you choose what you eat, and you eat it, but Allah Ta'ala knew what you were going to eat. Right? So both sides agree on that, so we start with that. The choosing and doing we do, and the knowing Allah Ta'ala has. Alright? This division is precisely the solution and resolution to the paradox. Because if this division didn't exist, then there would be a paradox. If this division didn't exist, what would it mean? So option one would mean that Allah Ta'ala does the choosing and doing and the knowing. So Allah Ta'ala chooses for you what you eat and and he eats it and he knows what you're going to eat. So that's not true. So Sri again said, we don't say that. The questioner doesn't say that. Even the questioner says, no, you, you choose and you do what you do yourself. Right? But that would be a paradox. Then you would say, life has no meaning. Life has no point. Allah Ta'ala chooses everything for me, He does everything for me, and He knows I was going to do it. Yes, that would be nonsensical, that would truly be a paradox. 
other option would be if there wasn't this division, that we knew everything, we had everything, so we do the choosing and the doing, and we know. We know when we're going to die, we know what we're going to eat tomorrow, we know what a person is going to do to us, we know who will be loyal to us, we know who will betray us, we also know. That's, number one, also not the case. Nobody makes the claim that we know the future. And number two, if it were the case, then yes, then you could say it's a paradox. Life would have no meaning if you knew what you were going to do in the future. How would you live? You couldn't live a life like that. The first thing is that if you knew where and when you were going to die, you could never survive that knowledge. And then there would be a paradox, for example, if you knew that you were going to deny Allah Alam, but if you knew you were going to die on January 1, 2017 in Karachi, so on December 31st you'd catch a flight to Jeddah, right? That's what you would do, if you knew, right? If you had the knowing and the choosing and the doing, so if you had the knowing that you were going to die tomorrow, you would choose to do the action of leaving Karachi today and not being here tomorrow. Then there would be a paradox. What would happen? Hmm? There would be a paradox. So the way the paradox is eliminated is through this division that the human has the choosing and doing and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has the knowing. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's no paradox with the division. The paradox exists when there's not a division. All right. So this is uh, these four points. Now if you show the rest of the four points, these are all the four points that I mentioned to you. Knowing... And the knowledge, that is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the doing and the choosing, in fancy, in their philosophical terms, this is called voluntarism, it's called agency, simpling, this is called action, that you are the chooser, you are the doer, alright, you are the agent of your own actions and your own decisions. Okay, then I explained to you the real paradox would be if both were with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or both were with the human being. And the implications of that would truly be illogical. Okay? And then I've already explained to you earlier the timelessness of the divine being that Allah subhanahu wa exists as he has always existed beyond any notion of time, any concept of time. This is one round. There are a few rounds to this question. Alright? This is one round. Now move to the next slide. You can show the whole slide. Slide number 22. Next question they will say, okay, okay, fine. We accept that. But, even the choices that you make and the actions that you do are predetermined. How? So they can't say predetermined by Allah Ta'ala knowing because you already handled that. So they come up with two other reasons. Number one, they will say they're predetermined by your nature. And Allah Ta'ala created your nature, therefore you're bound by your nature, therefore your choices and decisions are predetermined. Nature means, so the cutting edge of this, which is just a theory now, is now in genetics they are trying to search for what they call behavioral genes. Genes that determine, and they use this word determine, genes that determine your behavior. It's not a fact yet, but it's a major area of exploration for them in human genetics. All right? And the notion is that perhaps there may be a gene in you, or gene that makes people more angry. So anybody who has that is going to be angry, and somebody who doesn't have that uh, would not be angry. Okay? All right. And even before let's say they came up with genetics, still, they would just generally talk about nature. That, well, be, you believe because God made you that way. And they were saying, I don't believe because God made me that way. That's how they would talk, right? Okay, that's called nature. So the answer to this. Answer to this is psychology and social reality. For example, 
obviously within our own system of Islam, but also even outside of Islam, there are not just one or two or few, there's millions of people throughout time who have changed their behavior. There are millions of people who have changed in terms of their personality. For example, if there is a person, so let me give this example, if there is a man who has an anger problem, and because of that anger problem, Billah, he abuses physical abuse, domestic battery, physically abuses his wife, right? So now what's going to happen? Are we going to sit that woman down and tell her, well, your husband is predetermined genetically to be angry? No. We will send that husband to anger management therapy. He will be sent to counseling. We have our own way of doing it in Islam. There may be another way that psychologists do it. You can very well blend and combine the two. And you will find that there are many people who change. And they will say that I used to be angry and I'm not angry anymore. I used to be an alcoholic. I'm not an alcoholic anymore. I used to be this. I used to be that. So the notion that a human being can change, just the possibility of changing, means that it's not predetermined. Because predetermined strictly means, when you're using predetermined to negate free will, means you are trying to negate that there's no possibility of change whatsoever. Only then would it be a paradox. And then it would be unjust that Allah is going to call me, Allah is going to take me to account on the Day of Judgment for the actions I did when I was angry. However, He created me and predetermined my nature to be angry and it was impossible for me to change. Then you could say Allah is unjust. But that's not the case. In fact, our very deen has a very important branch in it called Tazkiyah. Kad aflaha man zakaha. Allah Himself has said, alhamaha fujuraha wa taqwaadahs. But both in there. They're both there. Anger is there. Patience is there. Now you have to work on it. There's a process. Both have been put in you. You've been pre-programmed for both. Not one. If it was only one, then yes, it's predetermined. It's not fair. You've been programmed for both. And Allah Ta'ala also did that because of the first thing, because of the freedom. The freedom to do good and the freedom to do evil would have no meaning unless Allah Ta'ala put in us the capacity and ability to do both good and evil. Then the freedom has value. So Allah Ta'ala put the capacity for alhamaha fujuraha wa taqwaha. Then gave us the free will. Then gave us hidayah to guide us towards good. For example, Allah subhanahu wa put in a person lawful lust and unlawful lust. He put that capacity in them. Then He gave them the free will. You can look or you can look down. Then He gave them an eye with that ability. Then He gave them the hidayah through Quran and through deen, guiding them towards what is good. And that's, the, that's beyond justice. Justice would be to give you both and just give you that one line in Quran. Man sha'a fal yu'min wa man sha'a fal yakfur. But that's it. That would have been justice. Allah Ta'ala did more than that. Because out of His mercy, out of His compassion, He also gave us hidayah to tilt the balance and probability in favor of good. In favor of good. But then, His justice also demanded, because another question atheists have, that okay, there had to be something, because if it was just Quran and just Anbiya, then the balance would be so tilted that everybody would end up good, and then how could you say there's a choice? So I said, okay, on the one hand, I've got Quran and Anbiyan, my whole system of Hidayah. On the other hand, I will also create Shaitan and put enough inside everyone so there will also be a system of going astray. So they'll be balanced. To make sure they have that freedom. To make sure they have that freedom. Both things will be there.
So internally, فَأَلْهَمَهَا فُجُورَهَا وَتَقْوَاهَا Internally, قَلْبْ and نَفْتْ Externally, hidaya, Qur'an, Anbiya, and externally, Shaitan. Both sides are there. So why? Why does Allah SWT keep balancing it? To ensure the freedom. Because the freedom is critical. The freedom is critical. Then remember the other verse I told you. لَا يُكَلِّفُ اللَّهُ نَفْسًا إِلَّا وُسْعَهَا This is the wusa. This is the wusa that Allah has created. Beyond that, you won't be responsible for. So let's say somebody even says that, No, I've been created with a level of anger that is this high at level 10. With all of tazkiyah, zikr, sunnah, counseling, therapy, I can only bring it down to two. We say, okay, if what you say is true, Allahu Alam, but even if what you say is true, la nafsan illa you will only be dead on the day of judgment that did you bring it down to two. Fine, if that's what you say, there's a limit to how much a human being can reform themselves. So if we accept that, that it's limited, but Allah has already addressed that you will only be judged to the limits of your abilities. So you won't be judged until you bring it down to zero. You will only be judged and Allah will know. I won't know. Maybe I would think you could have brought it down to zero. But let's say you're right. Allah will know that. And will know you could only bring it down to two. So you just have to bring it down to two. That's it. So this is some of the answers to their argument about nature. Next argument they give is then about nurture. Well, you were born in the Muslim family and he was born in the Hindu family, right? Which, okay, so I gave you my example. I mean, 99.99% probably is true if I was born where my first cousin was born and he was born right. Well, it, that's definitely true about this way. If I was born where my first cousin was born, probably I would have grown up Hindu. Probably I'd be a Hindu right now. Right? Fair enough? Okay. So, well, what about that then? Well, that's not fair. Why is it not fair? Because it's not fair. Well, Raj was born in a Hindu family. It's not his fault. He had nothing to do with that. Okay. Now, again, the argument is what? They're trying to lead it to what? That this is unjust and unfair, Allah subhanahu All right. For here, for you to understand this, then I've got to, you know, you can move to the next uh, slide. You can show the first three lines. Life on earth, Muslim or non-Muslim, by birth or by choice. All right. So now the question being posed here is all due to nurture. All right. Uh, even before I get to that, the, the Hindu Muslim, uh, just an example, it could be anything, it could be atheist Muslim. Uh, first of all, you should know that nurture, nurture means where you were raised, what family you were born in, what century you lived in, who your parents were, who your friends were, etc. Nurture itself is not deterministic, means it does not necessarily 100% determine your behavior. The best example of this is that two brothers can turn out totally different. Even in terms of nurture, same century, same culture, same society, same country, same parents, same family, sometimes same school, sometimes same teachers even. Right? And they can turn out totally different. So it's clear that nurture itself is not, necess- is not absolutely deterministic. Right? Okay. Then the next thing was what I told you about the Hindu Muslim family. Alright. So here, all we have to do is show a possibility. No doubt, it's not certain. Because there's no certainty for the person born in the Muslim family either. The person who's born in the Muslim family is not certain that they will choose Imam. In fact, all these ex-Muslims who choose atheism, they're all born in Muslim families. So there's no certainty either way. The justice is just that Allah Ta'ala create enough circumstances for the possibility. 
Because then you use the free will. Then if there's a possibility, then he would have chosen not to accept. And if there's no possibility whatsoever for a person to accept Islam, then you would say, well, how can you really say they were free to choose Islam when that possibility never existed for them? So all we have to do is establish the possibility. All right. Now, every single Muslim in the world is going to be in, in one of two categories. Either they themselves are convert, which means they accepted Islam from outside, according to their own will and choice. For that person, I think nobody has a problem, right? So if you're asking about two Hindus, born in two Hindu families, one of them accepts Islam and one of them doesn't, well, we'll say, well, that's fair, right? He didn't have any advantage. He was also Hindu. He was also Hindu, right? Both had Hindu environment, Hindu families, Hindu upbringing. So there's no problem with that, right? Right? Okay. The second possibility, first possibility of every Muslim is that they themselves chose to accept Islam, convert. Second is their descendants from some convert. Everybody is either a convert or descended from a convert. Even if you're descended from Sahaba, you're descended from a convert. Alright? Because that Sahabi, at some point in his life, was something else. And then he met Sayyidina Rasulullah, and he accepted Imam. Alright? Now, if you're descended from a convert, that's what people say, yes, yes, that's what I'm saying is unfair. That this poor fellow, it's not his fault, he's descended from 20 generations of Hindus in which nobody ever chose to accept Islam. And you're descended from 20 generations in which 12th generation that Hindu chose to accept Islam. And then you became part of the... So if I talk specifically to the Muslims in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, South Asia, that's what happened, right? Maybe you don't realize this, but 99%... This is Alright? 99.9% of Muslims in India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh are descendant from some Hindu in India who at some point must have accepted Islam. It might be a woman, it's not necessarily a man. Some man or woman. And that's an also amazing thing. None of us even know the name of that person. Maybe some of you might, I don't know. Most people don't even know. You would think that that would be something that we would have remembered that our elders would have said that I pray two rakats nafil every day for that person. That first person in my forefathers or foremothers who accepted Islam. But we don't even know that person. Who knows? Was it the great-great-great-grandfather? Was it the great-great-great-great-grandmother? Allahu Alam. Alright? Okay. Now what happened was, in any case, whenever that person chose to accept Islam, then Islam came in the nafil to you. And that's the critique that when the other person, they didn't have anybody like that, and their forefathers, so Hinduism came in nestled to them. Okay. Here, there are two things. Number one, it's still possible for that person to accept Islam. Because statistically, every single year, ever since the time of Nabi Karim Wasallam, there have been people who converted to Islam. Whether Hindu, whether Christian, whether Buddhist, whether Jew, whether atheist, whether Marxist, communist, etc., etc., so, the possibility clearly exists because it keeps happening. Then the person will say, okay, but I'm talking about probability. The probability is less that the person would accept Islam and the person who was born in a Muslim family, the probability for them is greater that they would remain on Islam. That's not fair. You say, okay. This is a concept which now if you move to the third uh, line is called transitive Java. Yeah. 
Yes. Transitive good and evil. Transitive means that it happens that if somebody does some good, they can choose to benefit you by that good. So another example of this is income and monetary socioeconomic background. So if somebody is well off, lives in DHA, PSHS, MAS, Gulshan, whatever, and somebody else in Pakistan is not well off, well, why? Because there was somebody at some point, you weren't born with this money, Maybe, few of you might be like that, but basically if you were born in a family of a higher socioeconomic status, the other person was born in a family of a lower socioeconomic status. Because you were born with a higher socioeconomic status, therefore you had access to education and you could go to IBA or other universities, and because that person was born in a lower socioeconomic status, they didn't have that access to education. Now, what does it mean that your education is false, it's a fraud, it was wrong, you should give it up, it's not fair? That's how life is, that sometimes the good that others do benefits their future generations. Similarly, sometimes the evil that people do also impacts their future generations. So, an example of this that Allah SWT has mentioned in Quran, so you understand there's a Quranic basis for this also, is in Surah Kahf. Now, you might remember the story between Nabi Musa salam and Allah Ta'ala's wali, Khizr. Right? So Musa Islam is inspired by Allah subhanahu wa that we know from the hadith that there's somebody who knows some things that you don't know. So he says, okay, I'll go find him, even though he's the Nabi of the time. He's the Nabi of the time and he should be busy doing da'wah to people and connecting them to Allah subhanahu wa But he goes for ilm. Allahu Akbar. Hmm? Yeah. He goes for the ilm. He says, if Khizr knows something that I don't know, I need to get that ilm. No doubt, his name was to use that ilm for da'wah, but he goes for the ilm. Alright? So, he goes and searches for this person, and then he finds him. Alright? And the whole story about the fish and all of that stuff. Okay. They find each other, and the Khizr says, you're not going to be able to last with me. You won't have sabr with me. You won't be able to have patience. He says, no, no, no. <laughs> I will. <laughs> right? And then, as you remember, three things happen, and in all three things, he questions questions Khizr and then after the third he says but that's it this is the separation between you and me we have to part ways now what was the third thing? the third thing was that they were passing through a town and they asked the people of the town to do their ziyafat you know help out the traveler with some food or something and the people refused which was again their permission completely permissible to refuse completely permissible they refused so on the way out he saw that there was this wall that had fallen down. So he engaged in hard manual labor and he picked up these huge stones of the wall to rebuild that wall. And he told Musa Islam, the Nabi of the time, to do the same thing. Ab Nabi Musa Islam, he did it and they did re-erect the wall, but he asked him, that, why? At the least you could have then told them, give us some food in exchange for Rebuilding this wall. So then he said, this is the separation. And the reason he gave, why did I rebuild this wall? He said that because there is some money, treasure, inheritance, of some youth which is buried here in this ground. And if, I'd, if we had left the wall fallen, then they would have never ever been able to get at their inheritance. So why did you, the wali of the time, and the nabi of the time, wali is zaman, wa nabi is zaman, ajib, the greatest wali alive and the greatest nabi alive. Why did they do this? 
So Khizr says, because Allah SWT told me that what? That Abuhuma Saliha, that the father of these two, and some ulama of tafsir say Ab means their forefather, and some say it was seven generations removed forefather, was Saleh. So that, that person being Saleh, transitive good, he's died now, right? Their forefather being Saleh had an effect of good that went down that Allah Ta'ala made the Nabi of the time and the Wali of the time rebuild a wall for the sake of those young, uh, for the sake of those youngsters. So yes, and some, somebody did a good deed. Somebody did the greatest good deed. Remember I told you what was the greatest evil? Was kufr. What's the greatest good? Adopting Imam. So yes, somebody in our forefathers did this greatest good that they adopted Iman, and yes, that benefits us. And yes, there's somebody who is born in a non-Muslim family, and he did not have, or she did not have any forefather who did that greatest good, and she is not able to benefit from that. Just like, maybe, I mean, I don't know everybody's, most of us don't even know even our financial history, but let's just construct an example. If there were two people who in 1900 were at the same level financially, one of them worked hard and the other one was lazy. Now the one who worked hard, he was able to take himself out of, you know, poverty and work hard and make an earning and make a living which he left to his son who also worked hard and this one's son was also lazy. So by the time you meet the third generation, the third generation baby is born in a well-off family and has access to education and everything. But it's not due to his own doing. It's because there was somebody in his forefathers, right, who did that hard work. This other poor fellow, it's not his fault. He's born in a household which has, doesn't have even food to put on the table, let alone money to educate him. It's not his fault. But yes, his forefathers failed to do it. Right? Okay. Now, still, a person says, okay, every, but still, that poor fellow is born in a Hindu family. Okay. Now, there's another aspect to this. Now, that person whose forefathers did not choose to accept Islam, Therefore, they did not get that transitive good. Who is going to give them the chance to accept Islam? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself. Because he is al-Hadi. Now go back. If you, you can see in everything, I keep taking you back to Allah ta'ala's attributes. When you understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there's pretty much no hard cases left. Alright? Allah ta'ala is al-Hadi. So yes, he might have gotten hidayah through his forefathers, didn't get it. Might have gotten a hidayah through a Muslim friend, didn't get it. So who is left for that person's hidayah? It's not abandoned, it's not finished. It's not game over. That's unfair, then he never had a choice. Allah Ta'ala is Al-Hadi. Now this is the theological understanding of the ulama, that Allah Ta'ala gives every single insan, every single insan, this is one understanding I'm giving you, right? Allah Ta'ala gives every single insan at least, at least one blast of hidayah that is sufficient enough that at least they ponder or wonder, maybe not even about Islam, but about Him, this much, that they make a choice in their life to search for Him, to be open to the possibility of His existence and believing in Him, as opposed to suppressing it and denying it and choosing that no, I don't need a God in my life. They won't know the word Islam or Sharia or all the details of it. But just Him, just Him, He gives enough hidayah. Nobody reaches adult age 
and passes away without getting at least that much hidayah from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that would have been sufficient had they chosen. Now you see, again, why free will is important. It comes in, not without their choice. With their choice, with their choice to embark on a journey of discovering him that would have led to him, he gives them enough hidayah of that in their life. And actually, when you ask, interestingly, almost all the converts I've met, and I've met a fair number, having lived and traveled in a lot of Western countries, when you ask them their story, because, you know, this is a very classic thing to do, is to ask them their story, how they came to Islam, they may say whatever they say, but when you read between the lines, so to speak, this is always the story. Somehow, Allah Taala at some point put in their heart this realization of maybe. It starts with a maybe. It doesn't go straight, I woke up and yes, with maybe, that maybe He is. And they chose not to suppress that. They chose to investigate that. They chose to explore that. They chose to pursue that. Their choices and actions converted the maybe into a yes. So when I saw this, that even the converts who were guided, the people who are converts who accept Islam, it began with a maybe for them. So I realized that that maybe is coming from Allah SWT. And their ability to convert, them, to convert the maybe into a yes, and others being unable to convert the maybe into a yes, that's exactly the free will, and that's the choice. So Allah SWT is Al-Hadi. Now again, now if you want to go back to the most basic level, is I would say, look, on the Day of Judgment, I don't have to answer. Allah is not going to ask me that question. Why did this person not accept Islam? Allah Ta'ala knows what hidayah he did or did not give that person, how many times he gave it, to what extent he gave it, and every time that person refused or accepted that hidayah. It's between that person and Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala. What I know, what I do know, is my Allah Ta'ala's al-Hadi. That's his attribute, that's his sifat, that's his name. And nothing in the world can change that. And he's al-Hadi for every single aspect of his creation, let alone humanity. Alright? So once you know that, the only injustice would be if somebody didn't get hidayah from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Not getting hidayah from a forefather, not getting hidayah from a friend, that's a separate thing. No person of dawah reached me, that's a separate thing. Injustice would only be if they didn't get hidayah from Allah. And I know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is al-hadi and he gives hidayah to everyone. How he does it? He knows that. I don't know that about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The details of how he gives hidayah to everyone. Alright? This last, uh, last two things, and then I will be, but you know, there's a little bit more. Almost done. Uh, last two things, what did you have? Guidance? Okay, guidance and misguidance. Because I want to show you the other side. Just like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is al-hadi, Allah ta'ala is al-mudhil. He misguides people. But when I was young, this is in 1993. 20 years ago, I could call myself young. 1993, the very first paper I ever wrote in my life on Quran was on this topic. And what I did was, I took all the verses in Quran where Allah SWT talks about misguiding people. Why? Because for me, at that young age in my life, this was a hard case. I was finding it difficult after having been newly guided by Allah SWT that Allah SWT could also misguide people. So I chose to investigate this. Oh, where does Allah SWT talk about this? 
you know, that he's misguiding people. And that paper, and I actually found it relatively recently when I was going through some very old stuff. Otherwise, it would have been lost forever in the floppy disks and things that nobody can read anymore. You wouldn't, people would know, except the elders would know, the floppy disks. Allah Akbar. Kya So, uh, I found a hard copy. I found a printout of that somewhere. Right? And I read it again. Uh, after, you know, maybe 20 years reading my own paper. Right? But what I did in that paper, and I mean, I didn't, I didn't manage to do everything, but I, I didn't take every, but I took some of the verses where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, talked about his misguiding. And what I found in that, and then I can now tell you that at least that part was correct about the paper, is that whenever Allah ta'ala misguides someone, he doesn't misguide them first, and then they make the wrong choices and actions second. Always the sequence was the other way. They made the wrong choices and wrong actions first, and he misguided them second. In fact, he misguided them a distant second. The feeling that one gets from that is that Allah Ta'ala gives hidayah, the person refuses it, continues on the wrong path. Then maybe Allah, because Allah knows best, Allah Ta'ala might keep giving them guide, hidayah, and they keep refusing, keep making, and at some point, and this is also very, there's a point now, which you can call, they cross the tipping point, like people like to say, the point of no return. Where then Allah Ta'ala says, so to speak, or addresses them, that okay, if this is the path you seem to keep persistently choosing, I push you on that path myself then, if this is really what you want. That's what it means. Not that the person was the true, sincere seeker of Allah SWT, wondering whether Islam is true or Buddhism is true, and Allah was al-Mudil and misguided them towards Buddhism. Not like that. Right? Not like that. So again, it was a lack of understanding in Allah SWT. And if only we had understood Allah Subhanahu correctly and deeply as He, again, I keep repeating this to you, to know Allah Ta'ala as He wishes to be known, to know Allah Ta'ala as He has revealed Himself to be in His Asmal Husna, in His Sifat, in the verses in Quran that describe Him, in the Hadith of Nabi Kareem Sallallahu that describe Him. That's much more important than going into these, you know, debates about certain aspects of what is istiwa al-arsh, and you'd be amazed what people try to get you into, right? You have to understand who Allah Ta'ala is. When you do that, then you won't be, these things won't be such hard cases anymore, right? Now, if you move to the next slide, 24. So this I've already done for you, the creation of this, I actually started with this. You can show the whole slide. Creation of humanity, the purpose the whole purpose of a human being. So when Allah SWT created humanity for that purpose to submit to be his obedient slaves and his al-hadi and his just, so necessarily he must give them that hidayah to be his obedient slaves because again he said he won't ask them to do something which is not in his wus'ah. His justice demands that he must have placed in our wus'ah and our ability to be his obedient slaves through his hidayah. Now whether I can see that in a person or prove that I can't do that. I personally say, no, no, look at this person. There's no way they could have ever gotten hidayah. I say, apparently it might appear to be like that but Allah Ta'ala, this is ghayb. This is part of his ghaib. It's not just that Allah Ta'ala is unseen. The way he operates, his attributes and his actions, his sifat and af'al is also unseen. 
how Allah tells Al-Hadi is unseen. Which you say, no, this ghaybi hidayat kinizam. It's unseen. I know he did it. I know when I look at this person, it doesn't seem like they ever got a drop of hidayat in their life. But Allah Ta'ala must have sent it to them. Because that's what he says. That's who he is. This, this is when you, so you, again, when you build up the workshop of the different verses in Quran and attributes of Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala, you come to this. And then, if you were to look at the verses, Allah Akbar in Quran al-Kareem, where Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala addresses those who deny him. Ma ghallaka al kareem. Does that sound like a misguider to you? Does that sound like an unfair, unjust rub to you? He's addressing nas, uh, humanity. Hmm? I can't even remember. Yaruhan nas or yal insan. Insan, I think, right? He's addressing humanity. And al-insan here means that insan which is not yet on imam. So that Allah Ta'ala who has revealed this is how he feels or this is how he addresses the person who denies him. So you can't think that that Allah Ta'ala is going to be unjust one. This is, his, this is the izhar of his hidayah. This is him manifesting that he wants them. And when he wants them, he would have sent them hidayah. Now that's the tragic nature of the human being. And that's also due to their free will. And when Allah Ta'ala wants them, they can still choose not to want Him. That's free will. Allah Akbar Kabira. When Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala wants them, He sends Hidayah to them. He reveals Quran. He sends Anbiya. He sends Rasulullah Wasallam. He might even do some Azbabi Hidayah, some Muslim friend, Dai, etc. But if they choose not to want Him, Man Whoever wants, they can adopt disbelief. So the free will part keeps coming. And Allah Subhanahu's attributes keep coming. There's no paradox. It's a complete, it's a complete concordance. They completely mesh with each other. Alright? Then, uh, two, three other topics that people ask us. You see, you can go on and on about this topic, right? Because, I mean, when a, per, you know, when a person is let's say, stubborn or insistent on their atheism, they just, uh, whenever you answer ten questions of theirs, they just raise the eleventh. They don't realize I just answered ten of your points. Right? Because your claim in the beginning was I answer one of your points, you'll accept it. Right? We answer ten of them. They don't mind. They just hit you with the eleventh question instantly. The second you give the answer, they hit you with another question. So then two more, I think it's just two more questions that I can think of. And then we can then open it up for the double, so Q&A for the morning and for the afternoon both. Alright? Two more questions. One is going back to that issue of, so you can show the whole, mm, we were on slide number 24. If you show the whole thing of slide number 24, so you will see creation of humanity, purpose, freedom, eternity. Still will be this question. Then why does the person, yeah, stay forever? So this has to do with the saying of Nabi Kareem, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, إِنَّمَا لَأْمَالُ Intentions and actions. So I will use a story to explain this to you. So imagine if there's a person who apparently, and let's just say, you know that he truly is from the Muttaqeen Salihim. Right? True Muttaqeen Salih Mu'min, 80 years old, old man. And then some, you know, let's say, rowdy youth go to him and say, Babaji, 
you know, how long are you going to obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and all you do is make ibadah, why don't you come with us for one night and we'll show you a good time, right? So Babaji will say, no, 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 I mean, this, is, I'm not gonna, this is what I do. They say, Babaji, what if you live for 200, if you were to live for 200 years, you would keep doing this? He would say, yes. Babaji, if you were to live for a thousand years, you would still do this? He said, yes. If you were to live for a million years, you would still be... Then he will ultimately, at some point, it will come out from his tongue. Even if I were to live forever, I would keep doing what I do. It's the Qamat, right? His niyat is forever. Same story, and there are people like that. 80-year-old Babaji. 80-year-old Babaji who drinks, who's a Marxist atheist, who doesn't pray, who has never done a single act of ibadah his whole life. Ibadah, not saying akhlaq. He must have spoken many truths. He had not done a single act of ibadah his whole life. So some young guys go to him. Say, Babaji, you're 80 years old. Why don't you now, finally, I mean, you're so old. There's not even much, whatever. Why do you even want to keep sinning? Why don't you change, spend a few last months, years of your life in iman and ibadah? He says, no. They know this is what I am, and, and they, don't, they, don't, they don't back up at all. I will drink whiskey every night. They say, Babaji, what if you were to live 200 years? He said, I would keep doing this. What if you were to live a thousand years? I would keep doing this. What if you were to live for a million years? This is my life. Eventually it will come out for him also. Even if I live forever, I'm not changing what I am. But that's the reality. A person's niyat is forever. Now there are many hadith of Nabi Karim that also talk about this. One is in the Malamal al A second is the Prophet said that you will be raised on the Day of Judgment based on how you lived. Because if you lived a life in a certain way, it's not, talking about, it's not excluding toba. It means that with, if you didn't make toba of something and you had istikamat on something, you will be raised with that on the Day of Judgment. Right? What you took with you in the grave, you will take with you out of the grave. Put it that way. If you make toba, don't take it with you in. It's not going to come with you when you come out. But you take it in, it's coming out. I mean, Allah Ta'ala might forgive it on the Day of Judgment, but you take it in, it's definitely coming out. It's definitely coming out. Alright? So this person's saying, I'll do it forever. So his niyat is forever. His niyat was forever. So their jannat and jahannam is forever. Because that was their niyat. Now Allah is not going to allow them to live forever in this world. He's going to pull the plug on everybody. Kullu nasan za'ikutul mawt. Every single soul self will have to experience and taste and go through the rite of passage called death. But the reward will be based, or the punishment will be based on their niya. And the last and final thing on this free will predestination is slide number 25. And now you can show the whole thing, which is this notion, and I haven't used their terms, because I'm sticking to our terms, but in their terms of the philosophical atheists, they call this the problem of evil and the problem of human suffering. They're thinking, well, what about that? Okay, we won't talk about, not, at this point, they'll say, well, don't talk to me about Iman Kufr anymore. Right? Let's talk about evil. So what does it mean that if Allah Ta'ala is merciful, as you claim He is, I mean, that is how they talk, right? Uh, so then why would He allow suffering in this world? Why would He allow evil to happen in this world? All right. So there are several answers to this. The first answer is that, okay, First I would say, okay, let's, what, what would you want to happen? That Allah Ta'ala should not allow any evil to take place. He should prevent evil to take place. 
So what would that mean? So the moment somebody raises their hand, let's say to murder someone, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala stops them. So I thinking, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to do that, number one, it would be all miracles. All life would be all miracles all the time. Number two, it would negate free will. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala stops the person who wants to do evil from doing evil, free will is finished. There's no free will. I told you, it's all about the free will. They have to be free to do the evil. Okay, then they talk about, well, what about the victim? Fine, you're giving this person the freedom to do evil, but the problem is, now, now we have the other word, if you see, they're transitive evil. One is they do evil to themselves. Okay, well, that's between them and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But when Allah ta'ala gave them the freedom to do evil, they can do evil to somebody else. So the person who is the victim of their evil, that's not fair. I said, okay, so what you're saying is injustice has taken place. Yes. Okay, what if we could perfectly address that. Just imagine if there was a perfect way to provide perfect justice to that person. So they said, no, there's no system like that on earth. We say, yes, there is no system like that on earth. There is one system, but it's never been implemented on earth except for 1400 years ago. So, but there will be a system like that. There's going to be a day called the Day of Judgment. And on that day, Allah Ta'ala will provide absolute justice and perfect compensation. There's many hadith of Nabi Kareem sallallahu the on what the Muslim will get on the Day of Judgment, on what the poor will get on the Day of Judgment. The victim of any type of oppression, any type of injustice will be compensated by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to such an extent that they will wish <laughs> that much perfect. They will wish that they had been more oppression and evil done to them so they will get even more compensation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That level of perfection. So the person themselves will feel like that on the Day of Judgment. It doesn't get any more perfect than that. So their compensation will be more than perfect. And then the justice Allah Ta'ala will do to that evil doer who did the evil to that victim, who did the injustice, who did the oppression, that will also be perfect justice. Perfect justice. Alright? So that answers the question of why there is evil or why people are allowed to do evil or they will ask you know uh, the people another answer another question I said well okay what about not evil that people do but they will say what about the evil Allah does God does to people so what do you mean the evil that God does to people so people dying of hunger and famine nobody is themselves doing that I said no people are doing that how because Allah subhanahu revealed a system where that if you want, you could actually get complete justice on earth. It's not Allah Ta'ala's decision that you have to wait for the Day of Judgment to get complete justice. He revealed and He kept revealing throughout history through His Anbiya and Deen, perfect justice on earth. So Deen of Islam, if you were to implement it truly, would lead to peace and justice and harmony on earth. But humans chose not to do it. Humans chose not to do it. My brother used to work for the IMF. And the IMF and World Bank once made this report that if the industrialized nations of the world were to give, it was something very small, like 1 or 2% of their grain reserves. Apparently they have reserves. Their grain reserve, grain means wheat and corn and oat and barley, and may Allah alam, their grain reserves, all global hunger would be eradicated. And I thought that we have usher, and on top of that we have the zakat. But Allah made a system that even the economists are saying that if only this much could be given, 
only this much can be given, global hunger and famine would be eradicated. Allah Ta'ala has made this system. So that's not unjust. If you make a system that can give people justice on earth and can save them from this type of suffering and harm, and then the suffering and harm that somebody does to them, then Allah Ta'ala gives perfect compensation and absolute justice in the Day of Judgment. And it's even in the Sharia given away to get perfect justice for that crime on earth as well were people to uh, implement that. So then the last two ayahs we will then now show you to conclude this uh, that actually ultimately being guided to deen if you see on slide number 26 أَوْدُ بِاللَّهِ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ الرَّجِيمِ بِسْمَ اللَّهِ الرَّحْمَنِ الرَّحِيمِ فَمَنْ يُرِدُ اللَّهُ أَنْ يَهْدِيَهُ يَشْرَحْ صَدْرَهُ لِلْإِسْلَامِ That whomsoever that Allah Taala wants, that He wants to guide them, then He will expand their breast for the deen of Islam. And then the next verse, uh, not in Quran, but the next slide, Allah Taala says in Quran, أَفَمَنْ شَرَحَ اللَّهُ صَدْرَهُ Islami That whomsoever that Allah Ta'ala does the shara sadr, and that expands their breast for deen of Islam, that such a person will be on a nur. This person will be nurani. Every Muslim is nurani. Every Muslim will be on a nur. Min rabbihi, they will be nurani rabbani. Hmm? They will be on a nur from their rub. This is the level of hidayah Allah Ta'ala gives. Now yes, we might make the mistake that due to our sins and ghaflat, we suppress that nur, we veil that nur, we do acts of sin which are darkness. That's why Allah Ta'ala calls them zulamat in Quran. Why? Because it was in contrast to this nur. Remember this ayah, Surah Zumar, this nur. So when you got that pure initial nur of iman, and then a person did any sins, then those sins are called zulumat, darknesses, veils of oppression. On what? On the nur of iman that Allah Ta'ala gave to a person. And that's the extent of free will. That even if Allah Ta'ala Himself selects a person from his irada to give them hidayah and shara sadr on Islam, still a person has the free will to choose to sin. And that, that describes 90% of our ummah today. 90% of Muslims alive were given this hidayah from Allah SWT. Maybe not even through any real choice or effort on their own. And through His will and wish and hidayah, they got this nur and they still exercise their free will and freedom to disobey. And they disobey Allah SWT and they put zulamat on top of that nur. So if nothing else, the sinning believers of this ummah are the greatest hujjah of the existence of free will. Alright? Even in the face of Allah Taala's divine irada and hidayah for us. So these were the long explanation of the hard case. Now, in this, uh, you will still not necessarily get complete understanding. Partial understanding. At least it makes a person realize that this whole free will predestination is not a problem for my faith, the way atheists are trying to make it a problem for me. And yes, our knowledge about this is Mahadud, Sayyidina Ali, 
radiallahu ta'ala anhu wa karamallahu wa ju famously said that how much can you, I tell you about this, says I have enough free will to raise one foot and I don't have enough to raise the other one. <laughs> right? So that's a simple way. And Nabiya Kareem once said, but you people can have an answer for that also, that somebody, one Sahabi, asked Nabiya Kareem can anything change my takdeer? And the Prophet he said that dua and amal saleh. Two things can change your takdeer. Dua and amal saleh. So the more philosophical will say, but Allah Ta'ala must have known that also. Yes, of course Allah Ta'ala knows everything. So Allah Ta'ala knows what your original takdeer was. And Allah Ta'ala knows that you would make dua and amal saleh to change your... Of course Allah Ta'ala knows that also. But you should at least realize in your perspective, from the choices and actions perspective, there's a way to a better takdeer. Alright? Beyond that, if you go real, real, deeper, 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 philosophical, philosophical, you will understand what I told you. You can never understand this completely. You can never understand completely. So then, what we invite you to do is why don't you understand what you can understand completely, which is the Quran and Sunnah of Nabiya Kareem Sallallahu Alaihi Why don't you understand completely what Allah Ta'ala wants you to do, even if you can never completely understand why He wants you to do it. And on the Day of Judgment, you won't be asked or rewarded on how much you understood why He wanted you to do it. You will simply be judged and examined and asked and rewarded based on whether you did what He wanted you to do. Right? So the name of the game is that in any case. And there is, and I already outlined for you in the morning, how I think we should begin and proceed in learning and understanding our deen. So we know what will please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alright? So now we pause. So 4 to 4.15 and then 4.15 to 4.30. So we can take your questions. So there's some way that... Uh, now, yeah, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to make you people write because I do this to the women and I do this to online. So I'm going to do this to the men also for all fairness. Everybody will write their questions. The women will write them and have to send them. Have you made a way for the women to send them? There's some couple who is taking it. Alright, and the online listeners will write on their online, which I'll open that up right now. I'm opening up uh, so I can see your online and the menus. Yeah, if you wish to ask a question anonymously, you can do that. If you leave your name and email and WhatsApp number, it gives me the advantage that if I don't get to your question, I might be able to contact you with the answer later, right? But if for any reason you wish to ask anonymously, I have no problem with that either. Alright? Um, because there's always only going to be a limited uh, set of questions that we can get through at any time. So you start with the I will when I take them. The, the other reason I make you people write them down is because I order them and I sometimes combine them. Uh, sort of that is one thing that we do. We do try to take the questions that we feel are most on topic and most beneficial for the audience, for the public audience first. Um, because sometimes a person might raise a question, that is a good question, but it will only benefit them. Alright? Okay, let me start with one question that is on topic while the rest of you write that has come from the online audience. The Imam Bukhazari, Allah Ta'ala, used philosophical terminology 
And you said that we should leave that part of his explanation of Tazkiyah on the shelf. So how can we do that precisely? Because that philosophical terminology is, you know, in different parts of his text. So that's correct. You won't be able to do that yourself. You will need a teacher to do that for you. Uh, and this is one of the many things a person needs a teacher for. There will be a lot of things that I mentioned today that you can't do yourself. And this is a perfect example of one of them. So that's why I feel it's better to study Ghazali or Rumi. Uh, maybe, I don't know enough about Iqbal to even say much about that, right? Uh, but uh, these, the Islamic scholar tradition, with somebody who understands that, and can understand that which parts of it were particular to that context and may not be of benefit or even relevance for people today. And the large part of it, which is still beneficial to people, still to get it from a living scholar who can help apply it to our current and contemporary context. So that is correct. You won't be able to do that yourself. right? Uh, if I was to add to this question, because sometimes people still like to read on their own, like I told you, you should have your readings and have your professors. So Imam al-Ghazali himself told people that they should begin with his book called Bidayat al-Hidayah, The Beginning of Guidance. And if you read that work, you will see that there is no real philosophical terminology in that. Then there is a difference of opinion in the Ghazali scholars as to what was his last work, some feel it was his letter that I've taught sometimes and it's online, Yayo Al-Walad. And some feel it's minhaj, his Minhaj Al-Abidin. These are both available in English, Urdu and Arabic. Right? All three of these books. And none of these three have any of that philosophical uh, explanations of things that were maybe needed in his time but may not be so needed in our time. So for somebody's reading, they could start with these three texts and then there's certain sections of the Ihya that don't have this and there's some sections of the Ihya that have uh, a number of sections that have a number of this so you might want to be guided by a teacher and absence of a teacher if you read these things on your own then you just have to skip through or ignore the more philosophical things and focus on the more uh, direct explanations alright that's one from the online now we'll take one from the Men. Oh, okay. My Urdu ability to read Urdu handwriting is a little bit slow. Uh, I'll scan it, but I may not be able to do it with this. Okay. One question is that uh, you had mentioned that the age of Nuh al-Islam was... Uh, sorry, if I, if I don't ask about the reason about the age of Nabi Nuh al-Islam, then actually I'm not accepting the age of Allah. Might be the age that Allah Ta'ala mentioned. Then will my Iman be intact or not, even though I believe in all of the Qur'an? 
So, you're, okay, so maybe I work backward. The Iman will be intact as long as you believe in all of the Quran. If you wonder about the age of Nuh alayhi salam, that okay, was so long, almost a thousand years, right? That's also fine. Uh, but if you think that it's not possible, that's the only thing that is a problem from the Imam perspective. And if you think it's not possible, or you insist that such a thing is impossible due to science, and then that is incorrect. And like I mentioned when we initially talked about this in the morning, that Allah Ta'ala is not bound by the scientific framework that He Himself created because His might and power exists now as it always did even before He created the framework of the laws of science. Alright? Uh, then, um, is a question that if we get negative thoughts or waspasa, uh, how do we negate it? Because sometimes, like I told you, a person can sometimes start getting negative thoughts when they confront these hard cases. And how will we know that situation, whether that situation is from Allah as a test for us, or is it from Allah as a punishment for us, or is it not from Allah at all? Is it merely from shaitan? Alright. So the first thing that if you, I'm going to answer the question on a particular way, that if you get the negative thoughts in the Waswasav due to the hard cases, like I said, you have to put away the hard cases and just stop thinking about it. And the way to do it would be actively to think about those things in Islam that you have absolute certain yakin in. Think about the mercy and kindness of the character of the Prophet Think about the mercy and love of Allah Think about like that verse I told you, right? How lovingly Allah is addressing even those members of humanity who deny Him, think about how lovingly Allah addresses believers, you must immediately shift to that and drown in that. And once you've drowned in that and you get all the feelings of love for Allah, then you open this back up and you go to some scholar and you try to resolve that particular matter. Because the reality is that for the second part of the question, it might be none of the above. It might, not, it might not be a test from Allah, might not be a punishment from Allah, might not be shaitan. It's just a question that arose to you in the course of your pursuit of knowledge. It's not necessary that it's definitely coming from Allah Ta'ala or coming from shaitan. It's just, a, it's just something that occurred to you while you were pursuing your learning and study on deen. Then a question is that if somebody doesn't find these cases quote-unquote, to be hard, or somebody who actually understands it, uh, it was mentioned that we should work on our spirituality. What is meant by that? <coughs> Look, for everyone in any circumstance, the asal is our spiritual relationship to Allah subhanahu wa The asal of the abd, rab relationship is spiritual. The proof of that is in Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who are the Alladina Amanu, the ones who are the most intense in their love for Allah Subhanahu Not the ones who are the most scholastic and the most learned. There might be many people in Ummah, past and present and future to come, who may not be that learned, but they truly loved Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala. And they had a ta'luk, a real deep connection and relationship with Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala. And they were the obedient, submissive slave of Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala. That is always the asl for any and all areas of the spectrum. Affected unaffected, questions, no questions, it doesn't matter. So that's maybe a general thing that, remember, we talked about knowledge, practice, and experience. If there's any hiccups in your knowledge, you should contain that 
it should not cause hiccups in your practice, your amal, your amal, and it should not cause hiccups in your experience. That is another way you can say Islamic spirituality. Working on spirituality means that keep working on your amal, keep working on your feelings for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, irrespective of how successful you may or may not be in your intellectual journey. Example of transitive good and that you gave the example that uh, about the wall in the Surah Kahaf, is that also true in the case of transitive evil? Now, you know, and I, I have to combine this with another question uh, that somebody is mentioning that they've heard that if a person does zina, then somebody will do zina with their sister or their daughter. So that's not necessary. It's not like that, that if the man does zina, then necessarily some other person will at some point do sister, zina with his sister and daughter. Rather, there was one hadith in which Nabi Karim Sassam tried to explain it in this way to a person that if you do zina with somebody, would you like it if somebody did it with your sister or daughter or mother? And the person said, no. And the Apostle said, surely whichever woman you do it with, she must be somebody's, either sister, daughter, or mother. That's what the Apostle meant in the city. Not that Allah Ta'ala is going to, out of vengeance or anger, make that happen to you. No. So in that sense, uh, there's not that sense of transitive evil. That if somebody sins, the sin will haunt you the sinner, and will go with you, the sinner, in your grave, if you didn't make toba, and will come with you out of the grave, and you have to reckon to Allah, it doesn't mean the sin will bounce back on your uh, sister's mother or daughter. Sometimes people think like that, and that can be a beneficial way of thinking in terms of fear, and another way, that if a person does a sin, and is not pious, then the effect of their words when they try to do talim and tarbiyah of their children, will be less, because they themselves are practicing what they preach. In that sense, then they would have failed as their duty as a parent, and it's possible that their children, because they couldn't get the proper tarbiyah of their parents, uh, because their parents were practicing themselves, then the children may also end up in sin. It can work like that in that way, but not that Allah subhanahu wa will punish a non-sinner due to the sin of someone else. And that's exactly what Allah SWT says in Quran, when he meant, meant, means in Quran, when he says that nobody will bear the burden of another person. This is exactly what Allah SWT means. No non-sinner will bear the burden of the sin of another person, but yes, maybe we could have benefited from them more if they hadn't been a sinner. Right? If the father oh, had not wrongfully divorced the mother, the child would have benefited by growing up in a proper household and not a uh, a divorced household, right? And remember also, uh, my own feeling is that when I told you that Allah Ta'ala will give perfect compensation on the Day of Judgment, even more than perfect that the person will wish, Allah Ta'ala also gives compensation in this world. Allah found their hadith that the Prophet has mentioned that Allah Ta'ala's madad and nusrat, his special help and kubuliya is for the Muslim in this world also. I only told you, I mean, I only mentioned about the Day of Judgment, even in this world. And one of the most beautiful ones of them that you would all know, that the dua of the Muslim is makbul, right? In this world, in this life, okay? So, these are done. Okay, this is the next set.
The person who asked me about writing articles in Tribune and Dawn, you have to ask me this question individually. It's only when I know who you are that I can advise you. Are you really uh, up for that? And then I would tell you how you could go about doing that. I should tell you this is the third set. Okay, yes, there's another good question. What about an atheist or a person who lives in China or a faraway place? So this is a question that you're saying the Imam al-Ghazali, one of his works called Fasil al-Tafrika, which has been translated again into Urdu and English. I keep saying this to you people to show you that there's a lot to do in Urdu and English. And all these ulama who translated all these works from Arabic into Urdu or into English was precisely for this reason that they didn't want you to be mahroom of this knowledge just because you're not fluent in classical Arabic. It was their concern for you. So don't ever accept this idea that ulama want to keep you from knowledge. If ulama wanted to keep you from knowledge, you know how many works have been translated into Urdu for your sake. Why in the world would they translate that stuff into Urdu if they wanted to keep you away from knowledge? The best way to keep you away from knowledge, I can tell you as an alim, is just talk in Arabic and write in Arabic all the time. I'm gay. <laughs> you guys will be finished. Alright? Now Imam al wrote a very interesting thing that not about the person today, he points out, which is completely historically true, that in the very lifetime of beloved, blessed Sayyidina Rasulullah, Sallallahu Wasallam, there were humans on earth who didn't know he was, they didn't know about him. Vikings in Sweden and people in areas of China, they didn't even know, even in the lifetime of the Prophet about the Prophet Alright? All because that was not an age of you know, news and information, superhighway and stuff like that. So he says, what about those people? And then he says, in the, and from that time up till his time he was talking, that there were always been people like that, even in his time. Now question arises that can there be people like that today, given you know, global information and global village and globalization. Allahu Alam. Whether they exist today or not, I can't tell you, but I can tell you if they exist, what does Islam say about a person in any time and age to whom the message has not been delivered, who has not received the message, doesn't know that there's something called Islam, doesn't know that there's a system in which you pray five times a day and fast and lower your gaze and etc. Right? So what will they be mukallaf on the Day of Judgment? So if you remember, I had mentioned earlier that the ulama believed that they would have been given a or several blasts of hidayah at least to know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So on basic tawheed and to know Allah ta'ala as one supreme being, right? So they will be called to account on basic tawheed. Second, they will be called to account on basic morality. Uh, because Nabi Karim sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said that ad-deen al-fitrah that our deen is a deen of fitrah. So the, the jurists have actually classified that there are two acts that are disliked to Allah subhanahu wa One that you could know intuitively from your humanity. With that sinnah, فَالْأَلْحَمَهَا فُجُورَهَا وَالتَّقْوَىٰ Allah has inspired you with that. And second, that are tashri'i that you would need the sharia to know. Such as eating pork. You would not know that eating pork is wrong if the sharia hadn't told you that. But you know it's wrong to have, you know, wrong feelings for your neighbor's wife, even if the Shia didn't tell you that, right? So they say that, and whatever that is, Allah Ta'ala knows. Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala knows what He did when He did that, فَأَلْهَمَهَا فُجُورَهَا وَتَقْوَاهَا What inner conscience, inner morality, intrinsic humanity He placed in the human, the human will be judged on that, and will be judged on that how they responded to whatever hidayah Allah knows best that he gave them towards his existence and his oneness. Alright? 
And if even if today people say they're people in Australia or Aborigines or whoever, if anybody is like that, they would be uh, judged on that basis. Then the next question is that not that person, the person who did know uh, about Islam, but they couldn't accept it because their parents and society taught them otherwise. So again, that's something I discussed with you when I discussed the, uh, mm, this issue of being born in a Hindu family or being born in a Muslim family. The probability is much higher for the person who's born in the Muslim family. And the probability is much less for the person the only thing to prove there wasn't the paradox is to prove the possibility, not equal probability. There's no claim on the part of Islam that there's equal chances. Because just like in the world, there's no claim that any economist will say it's an equal opportunity world out there. No, it depends. <laughs> did you come from a family which had the money to feed you and educate you, or did you not? That affects it. It's not an equal opportunity world out there. Right? Uh, Okay, this was then them, this is the next. Is it true that... Okay, uh, salvific theology is just the notion of who will be saved, who will get salvation. That's just a fancy word, that who is entitled to salvation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. <coughs> Question about, uh, you talked about one evil, which was the example of hunger and famine. What about natural calamities like earthquakes? Uh, that, Nabiya Karim Sallallahu has mentioned in hadith, that a person who passes away in a natural disaster, an earthquake. A Muslim who passes away is given a rank of shaheed. A non-Muslim who passes away, Allahu Alam. Will Allah Ta'ala compensate them for being passed away in the earthquake? Or will Allah Ta'ala simply judge them on whatever was in their book of deeds that it's just one of many a suburb of mouth, one of many ways of bringing death to people Allah subhanahu wa knows best there's a good chance uh, that that would be the case please recommend some lighter books on free will and predestination uh, I can't think of anything I could literally I don't want you to go further than this that's what I tried to tell you I'm not even so sure I should have taken you this far. But taking you further, though, there's no uh, feeling of that. We as students... Are men allowed to wear a ring? This is a too off topic. So my, I cannot scan Urdu. I just, I don't know, maybe I've said that. If it's Urdu, I have to read it. In the English, I can just scan and see what it is and figure out where to go. English, in Urdu, I have to read every word. I have no scanning ability. I'm not, in Arabic also, unfortunately, I don't have the ability to scan. Okay, somebody has written that in order to keep one's faith, it appears that you have to join with a group. Because if you're alone, you will have problems. At the same time, if you join a group, doesn't it mean that you have to become polemic? Okay, so membership of any group, in whatever sense the person meant it, 
will be polemic if you deny and refute every other group. It's that second step that makes it polemic. Otherwise, the person is right that, you know, when I told you you need reader readings and you need professors, that itself might become a group. This could, you could call this as a group. Islam Institute is a group. However you want to create groupings, right? The point is that you can't refute others, right? If your affiliation to any person, any institute, any scholarly methodology, any madhab, any reading, you're fond of Ghazali, you're fond of Ibn Taymiyyah, whatever it is, if that makes you go the next step, that you refute the validity of others, then it's polemics. And if you can accept that, look, okay, this way is valid for me, and that might be what works for them, and as long as we're both doing it for the pleasure of Allah Ta'ala and getting the practice, then it's not polemics. All right? So the group identity and affiliation has been there way back since the time of Nabi Kareem, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. I mean, just to show you, I don't want you to misunderstand because But if you used your akal, you would say that, well, why are you calling somebody Muhajir? Why are you calling somebody Ansar? Just call them Sahabi. Why do you call them Badri, Ghair Badri? Just call them Sahabi. And Nabi Kareem Sallallahu himself made certain groupings based on when a person entered Islam, on which battle they did jihad, on certain things, right? But that wasn't a negation of the other group. It wasn't exclusive. But yes, there were certain groupings. There were certain groupings in the time of the Sahaba. There were Sahaba who were more around Medina. There were Sahaba around Makkah Makarma. There were Sahaba who went then into the new capital, Kufa. And that's slightly different than ways that they understood certain legal masail, Sharia. And then the Tabi'in made groupings around them. There were some Tabi'in who were literally groupies of Abdullah ibn Abbas. There were some Sahabis who were uh, Tabi'in who were in Kufa. They became groupies of Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Masood. There were some Tabi'in who were groupies of Sayyidina Abdullah bin Umar right? That's natural. They gathered and collected more and learned more of their deen from a particular Sahaba versus another. But it's not polemic because they weren't negating the validity of others. They didn't think they had the exclusive position on truth. Alright? So for example, like I recommended a couple of books of the seer seer to you. If by that I meant to negate the authenticity of every other book that I didn't mention, then that's a very polemical thing. I was mentioning to you some of many multiple of a world of things that are valid. <coughs> Somebody has quoted a hadith that if you hear a mountain was moved, accept it, but if you hear that someone's nature has changed, do not accept it. So I've never heard that hadith. Um, but I think the greatest example, because the person is questioning whether people can change. So the greatest example of the power of Islam to change people is the Sahaba Kram themselves. Not every Sahabi. There were some Sahabi who were virtuous in a certain way before. But the vast numbers of Sahaba would openly acknowledge this about themselves, that they were, when in the age of Jahiliyyah, they were very much from the people of Jahiliyyah. Now, if you want to take a couple of extreme examples, especially after Fatimakkah, so you can take the example of some great, uh, I mean, people who are greatly on the side of Kufr. Let's say Ikrama ibn Abi Jahl, the son of Abu Jahl himself, changed radically. Washi, radiallahu ta'ala anhuma, radiallahu ta'ala, both of them. Washi, who killed, who assassinated Sayyidina Hamza, then later becomes a Muslim, he changed dramatically. So there's so many examples from so many Sahaba Ikram 
that itself is a living proof. I was saying, Jabin, human beings, I can tell you totally random atheist Americans can change and go from alcoholic to non-alcoholic, right? But if you want an extreme example, there's no place uh, better to look for the proof of this than uh, uh, the Sahaba Ikram, radiyallahu ta'ala anhum ajma'in. What Nabi Karim Sallallahu did say in one hadith is that the best of you in jahiliyyah will be the best of you in iman. Iza faqihu, if they understand their deen. And what he meant by that is that whatever skills and talents and capabilities Allah Ta'ala gave you, you will be able to use those best in Islam when used in best in jahiliyyah. The perfect example of this and the example and what I told before is Sayyidina Khalid ibn Walid, Radiallahu Ta'ala Anhu. So the best general and military strategist in Jahiliyyah, when he accepted Islam, also then became the best general and military strategist of the Ummah. Alright? And obviously, that's a huge change. To be willing to kill someone because they're Muslim. That's how his feeling was Uhud. And to be willing to give your life to defend Islam. That's how he was after he accepted Islam. You, there can't be more radical change than that. You can't talk about more radical change than that. Okay, this is a question on Surah Al-Kafirun where Allah SWT says in the Quran, but if you remember, Allah Ta'ala is teaching the Prophet to say, Qul, proclaim to them my beloved Sallallahu Alaihi Qul, O you who have chosen with your free will to adopt the... Oh, I forgot the online people. O you have chosen to adopt the path of Kufr. Right? And then the, the, so the questioner, so I just wanted to put the, 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 the verse that they're asking about in context. So the question is that why does Allah SWT then tell the person to say, Lukum dinukum deen, That to you is your deen and to me is mine. Because it's exactly this. That to you will be the path that you have chosen and to me is the path that I've chosen. It doesn't mean the Bhikkhim is inviting them to his path. Right? But if they don't choose it or they tell him that we choose whatever, Lat and Uzat, and we choose the pagan religion of Makkah, Makkah, he says to the, Allah, Allah is telling him, okay, says, tell them, fine, to you, your deen, and the way you've chosen, and to me, mine, it's not a sanction, it's not an approval of their choice, it's not giving their choice equal rank as his choice, right? But the notion is that you will follow what you choose, right? So if you ask me, this verse is actually also another example of the free will. Okay, the, the salvific uh, thing I already explained. Uh, oh, the online ones. Okay. Okay, somebody asked this question that uh, sometimes a person does make dua and does amal saleh and it still doesn't change your takdeer. So, I, the reason I'm taking this, I wanted to point something out that's very important. Uh, number one, you have no way of knowing that. You, I mean, you can say it didn't change your outward circumstances. You have no way of knowing that it didn't change your takdeer. For example, let's say somebody's in an unfortunate situation. Fine. And you think that that unfortunate situation was something that Allah Ta'ala degreed for you. Correct. And you start making dua and amal salah, and that particular unfortunate situation, there's no change in it. 
fine, but that doesn't mean your takdir hasn't changed. It's quite possible also that if you hadn't made those du'as and didn't make those amal salih, your situation would have gotten worse. And maybe it's because of your du'as and your amal, at least it's not getting better, but it's also not getting worse. So the real thing to point out, uh, it's a very good question, I'm happy to ask the question, but the real, because it gives us an opportunity to highlight this, that you won't know this ever. Again, the knowing about your future, that's takdir. That is only known by Allah Taala. The choosing and doing in the present is ours. The knowing is, belongs only to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, okay, if someone does not get justice for some wrong done to them in this world... Will they get justice reward for that in Akhirah? Yes, Allah SWT uh, will, if an injustice was done to someone or they were not able to get whatever justice they want in this world, then Allah Taala will do justice on that day. It's also possible that the person who did that injustice to you, unknown to you, may have made tawbah for that. So it's not necessary. And we should not want and we should not, this is not the spirit that Islam teaches in us that we're like waiting for the day of judgment to see that person punished. No, no, no. Because remember I told you, if you really understood what the punishment of hellfire is, you wouldn't wish it even on your worst enemy. You wouldn't wish even one second of Jahannam on your mortal, lifelong, worst enemy. And that should be how we make ourselves in this world and certainly that's how a person will be on the day of judgment. And it's also possible that that person, even though maybe they didn't make up with us, but maybe they truly made tawbah and asked Allah Ta'ala's forgiveness for you know, hurting us and maybe there wasn't really a way they could make up with us. I mean, the damage is done. Uh, it might be possible that Allah out of His mercy might forgive that person for the injustice they did to us due to some other good deeds that they did. Just like we hope that about ourselves, that whatever bad things we do in this world, Allah Ta'ala will forgive us for them because of any good deeds we might do. So the same thing might happen to that person. Alright? Uh, so, when I was mentioning that as a theory to address the non-believer who thinks that Allah Ta'ala is unjust, it doesn't mean as believers we should be rooting for Allah Ta'ala's justice on the Day of Judgment in the sense that we want to see His wrath and punishment on our enemies. This is not a good uh, feeling to have, not a good outlook to have. All right? And, and the one way to understand this is Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam. he mentioned... Okay, let me do some other ones. You, you translated them? Okay. Uh, that they also mentioned that every morning and every evening remove all negative feelings that you have to others. The Prophet said that if you forgive others for the sake of Allah, Allah Ta'ala will forgive you. So these teachings, and many like them, are teaching us that your heart should be clean about others. And you should try to make yourself like that, that we forgive those who may have wronged us. Uh, let me just actually do this. Uh, you said that uh, someone would not go to Jahannam, whereas Allah Ta'ala has told us only believers will go to Jannah and rest in Jahannam. So that is my, I also fully believe in that. Uh, but the question is that who is a believer? Uh, there may be certain things that we know about that in this world, but the ultimate final knowledge of that belongs to Allah Ta'ala. Now in this world, if we feel somebody is not a believer, 
our deen teaches us only one thing, and that is we have to do da'wah and invite them to believe. That's it. Our deen doesn't teach us this, that we should view them as the future inhabitant of Jahannam. Even though that might be true, but we're not supposed to look at them like that. We're not supposed to engage them or interact with them on that basis. That's the basis that Allah Ta'ala will interact with them on the Day of Judgment. That's not the basis we will interact with them in this world. Our interaction with them in this world is just da'wah. That's it. There's no other interaction. There's no... I mean... There are some situations where there's another type of interaction, but in a normal situation, in a non-confrontational, non-violent, non-war, non-conflict situation, uh, then it's just about dawah. Okay. Uh, somebody asked a question, what type of ilm... I just have to take these last two, then I'll have to stop. Uh, what type of ilm is fard upon us? So, uh, you know, when I, when I told you in the very beginning where to begin, I cannot strictly say all of that is fard, uh, because fard in our deen means a level of obligation that if you don't do it, you would be a sinner. So that's not really the position. Like if somebody doesn't know the entire seerah, they're not a sinner. Right? If they don't know the seerah of the Okran, they're not a sinner. But what I was suggesting rather is if you're a person who has the, I mean, if you understood my English today, it means you're a person who has the ability to learn and be educated. So people like that should hold themselves to a higher standard. doesn't mean I have to call it farth for you to do it. They should hold themselves to a higher standard and they should try. Even if technically that beginning curriculum is not farth, but they should try and they should want to try to learn those things. The amount of ilm that is strictly fard on a person, uh, the answer to that is whatever is necessary for you to be guided in your life and to know what haram things to stay away from and what is halal to do. And you know, there are some ulama who have made some lists of that about tahara, about salah, but I don't think we should confine ourselves uh, to those basics. But no doubt we can begin with those basics and that's why, if you remember, one of the things I said was necessary fiqh. At that point, I had in mind that which is fard. But the rest of the things, I can't strictly uh, say that they are fard. All right. That's it. We have to go for Asr. But like I told you, I'll sit here from Asr to Magrimin. So I can even do some of these on the mic and can also meet you individually. And I just